This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, the Final Four is set. and The men's NCAA tournament will take a look at last night's games. Who won? Who moved on? One a shocker, one not so much. We'll look at yesterday's action in high school hoops, those who were actually able to play. The NFL makes it official, 17 games in the regular season. And while everybody is kind of focused on the Final Four, you may not be aware of what's going on in the Supreme Court involving college athletics. We'll get to all of that and more coming up in the next two hours of the show. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off yet another essential work day. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. Hit me up on Twitter. We got two Twitter pages, a show page at ESPN Morning Rush. My Twitter page, my personal page, at Rush Tony C. Got a Facebook page, at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. At any point, at any time, if you want to reach out, you got a question, you want to comment on something we're talking about, have an opinion, drop me a line, leave you a message. Any of those pages will do. Doesn't matter. I check them all constantly. at ESPN Morning Rush, at Rush Tony C, at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Also taking your calls on the Rush line, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance. Shamo, 301-759-2628. And, of course, our podcast page on the free Podbean app. You know the deal by now. We upload every show every day, minus commercials. Just for you. So if you miss part of the show, if you're not up early enough or you have to, you know, step in and out of your car or whatever, it's all right there. Go back and uh, find out what you missed. In case you missed anything last night, let's rock around the region. I want to rock! And we start with girls high school basketball. Where Moorfield would have been happy to have missed the bus. Frankfurt started the game on a 20 to nothing run and cruised past Moorfield 74-19 in short gap. Marie Perdue had 19 points to lead the Falcons, who led 46-5 at the half. Elsewhere, Petersburg was a 64-55 winner over Tucker County, and Union doubled up East Hardy 48. 24. On the boys' side, Martinsburg outlasted Jefferson in overtime, 78-76. Musselman beat Spring Mills, uh, 65-43. It was Philip Barber over Preston, 58-53. The Pendleton County-Kaiser game postponed uh, due to COVID protocols at Pendleton. In college basketball, West Virginia finally got some news, some good news, Regarding one of its players, after a week and a half stretch where one player said it was testing the NBA draft waters, two more players entered the transfer portal. One player 
Senior Gabe Osaboyan said he is using his extra year of eligibility and he is returning to Morgantown. Osaboyan only averaged 1.7 points a game, but he was one of the team's best defenders and rebounders. He earned all Big 12 defensive honors this season. So at least one Mountaineer says, yeah, I'm coming back for my, I guess what you would call his senior, senior season, his second senior season. On the ice last night, the Rangers uh, cooled off the Red Hot Capitals. Not a bad idea for Daniel Sprong to use his elusive shot. Now an up-ice pass, getting behind the defense, a backhander, Panarin, he scores. Artemi Panarin sneaks behind the defense out of nowhere. And the Rangers lead 4-2 with 4.19 to go, a three-point game for Panarin. Zach Fish, the call on the Capitals radio network, 5-2 the final. As New York snapped Washington's three-game win streak at MSG, TJ Oshie and Nick Dowd scored for the Caps, who lost for just the third time in the last 17 games. The Caps are 2-4 and four against the Rangers this season, the only team in the East Division uh, that they have a losing record against. In the NBA, a day after setting the franchise record for triple-doubles in one season, Russell Westbrook got another one. 22 points, 15 rebounds, 14 assists, but it didn't matter. The Wizards uh, still lost to the Hornets, 114-104 in D.C. Bradley Beal missed his second straight game for Washington with a bruised right hip. And in Major League Baseball, the Pirates and Twins wrapped up exhibition play with the ever-popular spring training tie, 1-1, both runs scored in the first inning. Key Brian Hayes homered uh, for Pittsburgh's only run. The Pirates wrap up Grapefruit League play with a record of 13-14-2. and two. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporelli Group. I don't know what the records mean in spring training. Nothing really. Only I will say I'm surprised the Pirates did as well as they did which still wasn't great, 13-14-2. It's still a losing record. But I thought they might win four or five <laughs> exhibition games. Trust me, you can never, never translate, or never. those don't transfer. Like, exhibition records never transfer to the regular season. I'm fairly certain the year the Lions went uh, 0-16, that they were uh, perfect in the preseason. I'm pretty sure <laughs> they were 4-0 in the NFL preseason, and they went 0-16. So you can't put too much stock in the exhibition play. But again, I'm a little bit surprised the Pirates actually did as well as they did. And of course, opening day is tomorrow. And we will have some uh, team previews uh, during tomorrow's show. So we're going to start with college hoops. Where else? As the uh, tournament rolls on, and, you know, I admit when I'm wrong, which is, you know, a lot. I could have I couldn't have been more wrong <laughs> when previewing the first of last night's games, which was uh, the West Region Final between number one Gonzaga or Gonzaga, depending on where you're from, and the six-seed USC. I thought... USC's interior defense with 
the seven foot freshman Evan Mobley. And that zone defense they've been playing for the better part of the tournament. I thought it was going to give them a chance to, at the very least, keep the game close, keep it competitive. I thought that defense was going to give Gonzaga fits. I thought USC's size would be a problem for Gonzaga. But the Zags, and in particular Drew Timmy, pretty much said, I got your zone defense right here. Kispert off the inbound to Suggs. Suggs feeds it to Timmy in a two-hand flush, and then he blows kisses to the crowd. No shyness with Drew Timmy, who's given Gonzaga the 20-point lead. Timmy! Not only was Gonzaga not intimidated by USC's interior defense, they went right at it. Timmy went right at Mobley, showed absolutely no fear, and quite frankly, the game was over as soon as it started. USC was simply not ready for what Gonzaga brought to the party. Was not ready. I wasn't ready for it. I mean, here's a a Trojan team. They had the fourth best defense in the entire country this year. They were holding teams to 32% shooting in this year's tournament. But it turns out the Zags defense, they were the ones setting the tone early. They forced a bunch of turnovers right out of the gate. They turned those mistakes into points. (laughs) And before you knew it, before you even had a chance to settle down, before your seat was even warm, before you were halfway through your first beverage of the evening, it was 25-8 to in the first eight and a half minutes of the game. After that, you could have just gone and done something else. Right? You could have just got up, left, went for a walk, took the dog out, I don't know, did some laundry, because the game was over at that point. USC was never coming back. You could have just gone off and done something else and waited until the second game to start, which, by the way, uh, started way too late. And after all that was said and done. And they'll dribble it out. And the quest for perfection moves to the final four. 30 and 0. Gonzaga is headed to the final four for just the second time in school history. 85 66. Gonzaga dominates the USC Trojans, winning and leading wire to wire to move on to the final four. 85 66. In a region final game, a 19-point win in an Elite Eight game. That call, by the way, on Westwood One's NCAA uh, network. Second trip to the Final Four in school history. Second trip in the last four years for Gonzaga, which, as you heard the man mention, 30-0. Two wins away from a perfect season in a national title. Here's head coach Mark Few. Just an awesome, awesome feeling to uh, be able to fight our way back to another uh, Final Four. Guys came out, just played with just tremendous energy and, and toughness and, and uh, you know, on both ends of the floor. You know, I really thought we got after them uh, defensively and, and 
I haven't seen the stats yet, but fought hopefully to an even battle on the boards against all that great size. Uh, but then we played with great pace on the offensive end. The first half, we got all the way through it with uh, just one turnover, which I thought was huge. And when we're doing that, that means we're, we're, we're really, really good on that end too. So uh, couldn't be happier, happier for the players, obviously, the staff, uh, gosh, the Gonzaga community, uh, Spokane, everything, to just get all the way back here to another Final Four. It's pretty cool. Coach said that he hoped uh, they fought to an even battle on the boards. It wasn't just even. The Zags dominated the boards. 41-29. And that was against a team with an average height of 6-7. The Zag, <laughs> the numbers just, it all just bears out. The Zags assisted on 21 buckets to just 9 for USC. It was just a dominating effort. Gonzaga has now won 27 straight. This this stat blew my mind. When I heard it last night, I I couldn't believe it. They have now won 27 straight games by double digits. Think about that for a second. They have won 27 straight games by at least 10 points. The last time anybody played Gonzaga to within single digits was West Virginia. A five-point loss back on December 2nd. Gonzaga is also the first team in Division I history to have five straight 30-win seasons. Bottom line is they're as good as advertised. If last night was the first time you saw Gonzaga, that's pretty much what they've been doing all season. Again, 27 straight games, double-digit victories. Timmy ended up with 23 points. Jalen Suggs had 18 points, 10 boards. Corey Kispert had 18 points. I thought, and I said yesterday, that USC was a good play getting 8.5 points. (laughs) 18.5 wouldn't have been enough. It was just a total beatdown from start to finish. Here's ESPN's Jay Billis. It's an amazing thing to watch Gonzaga play because of the way they move the ball and move themselves. And against USC's zone, they never panicked. They got the ball into the middle of it. Their passing was excellent in the first half. And USC never led in the game. And honestly, Kenny never had a chance. Uh, The first play of the game, Drew Timmy strips the opposing point guard and takes the ball the other way. Uh, Gonzaga switched on defense, and when Evan Mobley, the Trojans' big guy, would slide a a guard down in the post, that guard would just front him, sit on his legs, and they really couldn't get anything accomplished against uh, Gonzaga's defense. Uh, The funny part about watching that game is USC is one of the best interior defensive teams and best shot-blocking teams in the country. They blocked zero of Gonzaga's shots. USC this year, the most they, they only give up 24 points in the paint on average. The high that they've given up this year is 36 points in the paint. Gonzaga had over 30 with two minutes left to go in the first half. They blew that away. And they Gonzaga averages close to 50 points in the paint. They get layup after layup, not because they throw the ball into the post, 
because they're such a fantastic passing team, cutting team, and they're so good getting to the rim in transition. All right, it's really hard to run the table for a whole season. My old school found that against your old school about 1991, I think that was. Uh, factor that into this two-part question. Does Gonzaga have really any weakness, any flaw that you can point to? And if so, is there a team that can exploit it? I don't think they have a weakness. It's just that if they don't play their best, and a team like Baylor plays its best, they can certainly be beaten. Anybody can be beaten if they don't have a good day. But Gonzaga has so many different weapons. They can so score from so many points on the floor, and they're so focused on what they're doing. Like I don't think the undefeated record is going to factor into this. I think those guys are smart enough to know that at the end of the regular season going into the NCAA tournament, Everybody has to go undefeated to win a national championship. So, so it really doesn't matter. It's only these games, and they have to win two more to win a national title. History will go along with it, but I think they're focused just on winning the national championship, not, not on the undefeated season. You know, I said yesterday that if Gonzaga can actually finish this off and go 32-0, and there is there will still be people trying to tear it down. That's just the way things are in sports. Well, life in general, really. They go 32-0 and and win a national championship and become the first unbeaten team since Indiana in 1976. People will still have their doubts. Like, ah, well, if it wasn't a COVID season, you know, if it wasn't a COVID year, if things weren't so crazy, you know, or if they played in a better conference, which, look, granted, I've said that before. They do have a pretty easy playing in the West Coast Conference. That is true. That's a fact. That they have it pretty easy. That doesn't take anything away from the team they have. The team they have, they have is dominant. And I've said this earlier on the show, even before all this started happening. If they played in the Pac-12 or the Big 12, they wouldn't be undefeated. They wouldn't be. They would get tripped up at least once. They played some tough teams early. They beat West Virginia. They beat Iowa. They beat Virginia. Getting into that West Coast Conference schedule, that's that's a cakewalk. It really is. And people will bring that up, just like I did. And it does factor into it. But the bottom line is, this is a dominant basketball team. You look at their four games so far in this tournament. First game, the first rounder, when they played, was it Norfolk State? The sacrificial 16 seed, beat them by 43, right? Then they won by 16 over Oklahoma. Then they beat Creighton by 18. And they beat USC by 19. 43, 16, 18, and 19. That's just dominant. And and that's against teams that aren't in the West Coast Conference. Forget about Norfolk State. That's to be expected. But that's against a Big 12 team, a Big East team, and a Pac-12 team. Now, will they win the title? I don't know. I think the last five teams to go into the tournament, was it five? I think the number's five. To go in undefeated since Indiana, obviously none of them won. I think yesterday 
if I saw this correctly, was the anniversary of Duke knocking off that undefeated UNLV team in the Final Four by two points. You had Kentucky not too long ago getting to the Final Four unbeaten. They lost to Wisconsin. It's not easy. It's not easy. These games are supposed to get tougher (laughs) as you move on into the tournament. They're supposed to get harder. And Gonzaga is just making quick work of everybody. Everybody. What they're doing right now in this tournament has nothing to do with playing in the West Coast Conference. You watch that game last night, and you see what they were able to do against a team that was a USC team that was playing pretty good basketball. That's just impressive. It's just impressive. You, you can't help but be impressed. Even the haters got to be impressed. So they move on, which was expected, all right? I did pick Gonzaga to win. I just didn't pick him to win like that. So they move on, which meant there was one spot left in the Final Four. And that would belong to either UCLA or Michigan. Again, a game that started entirely way too late. For us old folk on the East Coast. So in case you had to go to bed like me, we'll go over that game next. Stick around. Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Last segment, we talked about Gonzaga. Absolutely stomping a mud hole in USC in the first game uh, last night. So the Zags move on to the Final Four, which meant there was one spot left in the national semifinals. That would belong to either UCLA or Michigan. Michigan, the number one seed in the East region. UCLA, the 11 seed, trying to pull off yet another stunner. After knocking off second-seeded Alabama in overtime, there was absolutely no way that UCLA, right, a team that had to win a play-in game just to get to the first round, there was no way that they could hang with the top-seeded Wolverines, right? Campbell pounds it down, shot clock at 10, get it to Juzang right side, just inside the arc against Brooks. Juzang rips it through, drives down to the right side, flips it up, and in on the baseline. Johnny Juzang with 27, 50 to 47 UCLA. Uh, hold up, hold up. That, that, that couldn't be right, right? That, that couldn't be. 50 to 47? UCLA had the lead late in the game. UCLA, the 11 seed, the team that I said, would get blown out last night. The Bruins holding Michigan, the Big Ten powerhouse, to under 50 points? Nah. Wagner turns, fires a three for the win. No good. Off the back of the rim, and UCLA has won it. From the first four to the final four. UCLA 51, Michigan 49 for the 19th time in school history. The first since 2008. The Bruins are going to the Final Four. The call's right there on Westwood One's NCAA network. Nobody, and I mean nobody, was as shocked as me. Well, maybe Michigan fans. When I woke up this morning, checked my phone, 
and saw that UCLA had won the game and was going to the Final Four. And I had to check my phone because the damn game started after 10 o'clock last night. And I honestly don't know how the NCAA and its television partners, CBS, TBS, TNT, True TV, whatever, how they think it's good for business when there are only two games on the schedule and the second one starts after 10 o'clock on the East Coast. And the kicker is that there was only one East Coast team playing last night. Now, I know Michigan is more Midwest, but it's still in the Eastern time zone. The other three teams were all West Coast teams, Gonzaga, UCLA, and USC. Why is the only East Coast team playing after 10 o'clock? Now, I know those things are already predetermined well in advance. You know, West Region Final 715, East Region Final to follow. But you couldn't have just switched the games? I mean, you've literally been stuck in Indianapolis for three weeks. They knew two days ago who was going to play last night. <laughs> the NCAA couldn't have just, you know, knocked on Michigan's and UCLA's doors and were like, you guys are playing 7-15 on Tuesday. Seriously, how hard would that have been? It's not like they had to change flight plans or they had to change, you know, any kind of practice schedules. Just flip the games. Like as soon as the games were over on Sunday, they could have went, all right, uh, so we got Gonzaga and USC in one game, uh, UCLA and Michigan. Okay, we're going to put, we're going to flip them. And Michigan, you're going to play first against UCLA. But what what would have been the harm in that? And I, I know this is a weird year because the Elite Eight is usually played on a weekend. But starting a game after 10 o'clock, and I know this is coming from a guy who, number one, is old. Number two, I have to get up at 3.20 in the morning. So it's not, you know, it may be a little more ideal for some folks than others. But I watched like the first five, six minutes and I fell asleep. I didn't go to bed. I just fell asleep. So I had no idea who won until this morning. And again, I was stunned to find out it was UCLA by a bucket. 51-49. And again, I admit when I'm wrong. I said they get blown out by Alabama, dead wrong. I said they get blown out by Michigan, wrong again. To their credit, they just keep on finding ways. I mean, who would have ever thought the 11 seed would knock off the one and two seeds in back-to-back games? UCLA, the first team since VCU in 2011 to go from the first four to the Final Four. And it's their first trip to the National Semifinals since 2008. Here's head coach Mick Cronin. You know, it was a Big Ten Battle Royal game. Nobody could find an offensive rhythm. That's a, that was just a credit to the defenses. You know, it's just an unbelievably physical game. You know, it's hard, hard to get uh, bodies off of bodies. Obviously for us, we rode Johnny as hard as we, as hard as we could with his scoring. But all the credit goes to the players. 
they've been unbelievable, you know, to hold Michigan to 49. That's two teams we've held under 50 in this tournament. We held Alabama to 65 in regulation and BYU to 60. Just an awesome, awesome effort by our kids, and all credit goes to them. As for the expectation of reaching the Final Four? We lost, when we lost Station Knicks to the G League, and, and then you lose Chris Smith, and then you lose Jalen Hill. If I'd have told you those three, you know, like the guys that, you know, Tracy Pearson and Ben are on here, I'm sure, that follow us every day. If, you know, if, we'd, if I'd have told you guys that last May when we were all in lockdown, you'd, you guys would have said you're not making the NCAA tournament. Nobody, you know, you're not, nobody would have said you're going to the Final Four, let's be honest. So, so absolutely no, no, Bill. You know, now quietly when we had those three guys, you know, quietly I told my dad, you know, I got a chance to have my best team ever after Johnny committed to us. Uh, that was not me, by the way. In the middle of that clip, I did not suddenly change my voice. That was Jay Reynolds from uh, Sports Center all night. Now you heard a coach reference Johnny a few times. As in Johnny Juzang, who absolutely went off last night. He scored 14 of UCLA's first 16 points and ended up with more than half of the Bruins' total. He scored 28 of their 51. And here's a kid who is a SoCal native, went to the other side of the country, went to Kentucky, played there for a year, but then transferred back home to play for UCLA, and he carries them to the Final Four after last night's big game. After the win, Juzang said, it's all about the love, man. Well, first, you know, the transition, I was welcomed with warm, open arms, man. So I was just welcoming to this team from day one. Um, so, you know, that it's, it's been amazing. Um, and then... You know, just working with these guys and um, learning and growing all together and just being pushed. Obviously, we've had our ups and downs during the season, um, but it's such a beautiful thing, um, you know, the way that we've come together, um, you know, for this postseason. And just to, it's just a feeling of everybody just so unified. It's like one just unit, and we're just all sharing in each other and room for each other. And I, I mean, that, I think that's why we're at, you know, this point and just playing for each other. It's just a lot of love, man. Just a lot of love, man. A lot of love and peace and harmony and unity. But he's not wrong. I mean, you need that on a team, right? You need players playing for each other in order to accomplish the pull-off what they pulled off. Now, it, of course... Uh, takes a little more than love <laughs> for UCLA to pull this off. Jay Billa says uh, it takes some defense, and it takes some rebounding, and maybe a little luck. Well, it's happened mostly through defense and rebounding and toughness, and they've been a little bit fortunate at times, but they played really well defensively, and then Johnny Juzang. I mean, it's been Jaime Jaquez Jr. and Johnny Juzang, but in this game against Michigan, it was all Johnny Juzang. He had 28 points. You mentioned what he did in the first half. Uh, Mick Cronin was running him off baseline screens to get him open, then using him as a screener so that uh, Michigan couldn't switch, but he was fantastic with those 28 points. He went 11 of 19 
But also to answer your question, Stan, they've had a little bit of good fortune with free throw shooting by their opponents. Their right. free throw defense has been great. <laughs> Last two games, uh, their opponents are, are 17 of 36 from the free throw line. And uh, they knocked down a couple of free throws. Uh, that might be a, a different story. But but the disruptive defense really was the difference. They, they disrupted both Alabama as the two seed and then Michigan as the one seed. And it's amazing that UCLA can be in the champion or in the final four after going, going two straight games, they shot under 40% as a team and they're in the final four. It's re remarkable. Michigan's hallmark has been their execution, but they weren't able to do anything defensively in this game. I know UCLA's defense was a part of it, but what else was going on with Michigan? Well, Michigan defended well. I mean, they held UCLA to, to 51 points. It's not like they didn't defend, and they held them under 40% from the field. I think one of the things that, that Michigan had a problem with was they turned the ball over too much. They weren't able to force UCLA turnovers, and UCLA has not turned the ball over throughout the tournament. Only seven turnovers a game. I think they only had seven or eight in this one. Uh, but Michigan turned it over 14 times, and a few of those were offensive fouls, you know, screening fouls on Hunter Dickinson where he wasn't set, things like that. And then they had the wrong guys shooting the ball. Even the last possession, uh, they ran a little handoff, got a ball screen off the handoff, and when Hunter Dickinson rolled, he took two defenders with him. But you know what? Franz Wagner uh, couldn't hit the broadside of the barn in this game. He shouldn't have been shooting that shot. And even the last, the last rebound that Eli Brooks had, he needed to take that back out rather than try that risky shot under the bucket. They had, they had opportunities and didn't cash in. You give UCLA credit for, for their defense and how tough they were uh, to, to sort of gut it out in a one-possession game. All right, so there you go. Jay Billis' breakdown of that game last night. We got to go to break. When we come back, we'll tell you just how close that game was last night and what the difference was. And we'll go back to Jay Billis, and we'll get his pick now that we have the final four set of who cuts down the nets as national champions. Stick around, 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Talking about last night's uh, UCLA stunner, another one over top-seeded Michigan 51-49 and just how close that game was. Both teams shot just under 40% for the game. Both teams made just three three-pointers. Both made just six free throws. Both had 12 assists and five steals. Now, Michigan did out-rebound UCLA by 10, 38-28. Uh, but they also turned the ball over six more times. The only difference was one extra two-point bucket made by UCLA. And we heard Jay Billis mention in the last segment, Michigan shot just 54% from the foul line, 6 for 11. If they hit their free throws, one more here, one more there, could have been a different story. Speaking of story, we heard from UCLA head coach Mick Cronin earlier. Uh, Freddie Coleman said last night that Cronin is a bit of a redemption story for the Bruins. What Mick Cronin has been able to do with this run. I'm really ecstatic for him as a coach because so many people completely crushed this hire by UCLA. What, you can get anybody else? We're UCLA. We don't need to hire the Mick Cronins of the world. Anybody worth their weight in salt was not thinking about your UCLA program. Sad to say, the days of John Wooden are long gone when it comes to this program. Big-time coaches and even big-time players 
they don't know about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. A lot of them know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is an author. <laughs> Seeing him pushing books. Or Bill Walton when he does basketball on TV with Dave Passion, ESPN, and the Pac-12 Network. They don't know that they're jerseys and they created that UCLA mystique. Mick Cronin said, here's the deal. We're going to build a program, and I'm going to build it my way. I know how to find players. I know how to get players. And everybody said, oh, man, this is going to be a terrible hire two or three years from now. You guys are going to regret it. Here we are two and three years from now, and Mick Cronin doing it his way, and he's in the Final Four. Yeah, taking an 11 seed to the Final Four. So it is set. Not quite sure we were going to make it, but we did. National semifinals are Saturday evening. First game, Houston and Baylor at 514, which is a really odd start time. And then the nightcap, UCLA and Gonzaga. And for the third straight time, I will be picking UCLA to get blown out. I've been wrong twice already, so who knows? (laughs) The other game, I don't know. I I got Baylor. We'll talk about it more tomorrow because, remember, there's no show on Friday. Who does uh, Jay Billis have cutting down the nets on Monday? Well, at the beginning of the tournament, I took Gonzaga. They're the best team. Uh, they score the easiest. They average 92 points a game. Everything they've done, and they did, just did it uh, against USC, which is a, an outstanding defensive team. USC couldn't even block a single Gonzaga shot. And they're one of the, their leading shot-blocking team in the country. And uh, Drew Timmy was fantastic. They've got lottery picks. They, they score. They do it all. And they defend at a high level. Uh, I think we're going to see Gonzaga cut the nets down and be the first undefeated team since Indiana. And then Mark Few's going to do exactly what Bob Knight did in 76 after he won. He's going fishing, man. (laughs) Don't forget, you can catch all the action right here on this very station. We'll have the Final Four and the national title game. Uh, Westwood One coverage begins Saturday, I do believe, 4.30. I do believe. It's either 4. I have have to double check, which I should have done before the show started, but I didn't. It's either there's always a pregame show, like an extended pregame show, and again the weird start time of five fourteen kind of screws things up a bit. Why would you start a game at five fourteen? What's wrong with five fifteen? What's what's wrong with the extra minute? Why does it have to be five fourteen? But anyway, either way, four o'clock, four thirty. We have all the games, the final four Saturday, and then we'll have the national title game uh, on Monday. And another programming note, do not forget, it's opening day tomorrow, Major League Baseball. The Nats and the Mets opening things up tomorrow evening, and we'll have the game for you right here, as we are the home, your home, of the Washington Nationals. It's hard to believe we're getting another season started, right? Is it hard to believe, though? I don't know. It's amazing they were able to navigate through some kind of season last year. Now we're starting this year on time. And something we're going to do tomorrow, I don't know if it's going to work or not. I have no idea. We'll have some Major League Baseball previews tomorrow, Orioles, Pirates, and uh, Nationals. And, of course, tomorrow is April 1st, which, of course, is April Fool's Day. And we're going to try a little something tomorrow, and we're going to get you guys involved, maybe even think about it today. What sports headline would you see tomorrow that you would absolutely positively know it was an April Fool's joke? You know what I mean? Like, what sports headline would you see and be like, ah, that, that can't be true, right? That You know, like, if you saw a headline tomorrow, Pete Rose 
gets the okay for the Hall of Fame. You're like, ah, that's that's an April Fool's joke. What sports headline? You know, Browns win the Super Bowl. <laughs> that's not fair. They're better. So we'll try that tomorrow. We want some input from you guys, and we'll talk about it more tomorrow. Your April Fool's sports headlines. Then, of course, there's no show Friday. Friday is a holiday. It's Good Friday, so I won't be here. There'll be no show on Friday. You'll get all four hours of KJZ. So there you go. We have the rest of the week mapped out, right? MLB, April Fool's tomorrow, not even here on Friday. Final Four on Saturday. We'll also have the Women's Final Four on Friday evening. Women's title game Sunday. Men's title game Monday. You got all that? You got all written down, I hope? Just store it to memory. We are chock full of stuff here on Cumberland's ESPN Radio. How about that? We got you covered from all angles, baby. Shalom. Anyway, hour number one in the books. Hour number two around the corner doing push-ups. Got some NFL talk coming up. 17-game regular season. Yep, it's happening. All that and more next hour. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230. Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. If you missed the first hour of today's show, we talk college hoops. What else? The Final Four is set. Gonzaga absolutely beating the brakes off of USC last night. And UCLA pulling the stunner, the shocker. The 11 seed beating Michigan and moving on to the Final Four for the first time since 2008. 19th total trip or 19th trip ever. You know what I mean uh, for the Bruins. Jay Billis gave his uh, prediction, which is it's easier to do after you know you're down the four teams, right? <laughs> oh, he did say. He picked Gonzaga before the tournament started, and I believe that. A lot of people did. I, like a dummy, picked Illinois, who was bounced in the second round. My bracket has been in shambles for uh, weeks now. I only picked one. I got one of the final four right. One. That's Baylor. That's it. It's not a good record. It's not a good, it's not a good outcome. I did have four. I had a half of the Elite Eight right, but I got one team into the Final Four because I had Gonzaga losing to Iowa, who was bounced early. Who did I have in the in the East? I think oh, I had Alabama coming out of the East, and they got bounced by UCLA. I had Illinois coming out of the Midwest, and they got bounced in the second round by second round by Loyola Chicago. That whole that whole region for me was a disaster. I didn't have any teams right, <laughs> hardly any. But I did have Baylor. So there you go. I guess one is uh, better than none. All right, before we get into uh, the NFL making a key a key decision yesterday, let's rock around the region. I want to rock right now. In high school basketball, girls high school basketball, Frankfurt started their game last night on a 20 to nothing run. 
and Cruz passed Moorfield 74-19 in short gap. Marie Perdue had 19 points to lead the Falcons, who led 46-5 at the half. Elsewhere, Petersburg was a 64-55 winner over Tucker County, and Union doubled up East Hardy 48-24. On the boys' side, all the action, most of the action from the panhandle, Martinsburg outlasted Jefferson in overtime 78-76. Musselman beat Spring Mills 65-43. It was a Philip Barber over Preston uh, 58-53. The Pendleton County-Kaiser game was postponed due to COVID protocols at Pendleton. In college basketball, West Virginia finally got some good news regarding one of its players. Uh, During a a week-and-a-half stretch where one player entered his name to the NBA draft, he could come back, though. Two players entered the transfer portal. Senior Gabe Osaboyan said he is using his extra year of eligibility to return to Morgantown. Osaboyan only averaged 1.7 points a game last season, but he was one of the team's best rebounders, best defenders, earning all Big 12 defensive honors. And again, because of the pandemic, everybody gets an extra year of eligibility. So Osaboyan is coming back for his second senior season. On the ice last night, the Rangers cooled off the Red Hot Capitals. Not a bad idea for Daniel Sprong to use his elusive shot. Now an up ice pass, getting behind the defense, a backhander, Panarin, he scores. Artemi Panarin sneaks behind the defense out of nowhere. And the Rangers lead 4-2 with 4.19 to go, a three-point game for Panarin. Zach Fish, the call on the Capitals radio network, 5-2 the final as New York snapped the Washington's Three-game win streak, T.J. Oshie and Nick Dowd scored for the Caps, who lost for just the third time in the last 17 games. The Caps, this is odd, they're 2-4 and four against the Rangers this season. That's the only team they have a losing record against in uh, the East Division. In the NBA, a day after setting the franchise record for triple doubles in one season, Russell Westbrook had another one, 22 points, 15 rebounds, 14 assists, but didn't matter. Wizards still lost to the Hornets, 114-104 in D.C. Bradley Beal missed his second straight game for Washington with a bruised right hip. And in Major League Baseball, the Pirates and Twins wrapped up exhibition play with the ever-popular spring training tie 1-1. Both runs were scored in the first inning. Key Brian Hayes homered for Pittsburgh's only run. The Pirates end Grapefruit League play at 13-14-2. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you uh, by the Caporelli Group. All right, so again, uh, several ways to get involved. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush. I had uh, Daryl hit me up yesterday. And in case you missed yesterday's show, uh, yesterday was my birthday. I turned 50. Don't want to talk about it. But at one portion of the sh- in one portion of the show, during one portion, whatever, a part of the show, I was just kind of reflecting on some things, you know, how, how things have changed over the last uh, 50 years. And I, me- I mentioned that, you know, I've seen vinyl get replaced 
by cassettes, which got replaced by CDs, which got replaced by the MP3. Right? It used to be a time where you're in, your album collection took up a whole wall. Now you can fit it in your pocket. And Daryl hit me up on Twitter and said, what, no love for the 8-track? <laughs> How could I forget the 8-track? Daryl calling me out, and rightfully so. How dare I <laughs> give no love to the 8-track? Those massive, clunky, beautiful things. The 8-track. You young, you youngsters have no idea what I'm talking about. None. Back in those days, it was revolutionary. It was innovation, right? The 8-track. Now they're just gone. I haven't seen an eight track in, in years. A couple other things that I missed yesterday over the last 50 years, the changes. I you know, I talked about some changes in sports. How you know every sport's kind of changed and, and evolved and in some cases devolved. The change in the first of all, the perception. And the legalization, which I guess comes hand in hand with sports gambling. But I remember growing up, man, you just never, you never talked about it. That was always just a, a hush-hush secret thing that you just did amongst friends, right? And you know, a little $5 bet here, $5 bet there. If you did it, you had to go through some uh, sketchy channels to get there. You know what I mean? You couldn't even talk about it on TV. Like the networks couldn't even talk about it. It was so frowned upon, sports gambling, sports betting, that you couldn't really mention. Like there are ways around it. Remember CBS had had Jimmy the Greek on, and ESPN had uh, what was his name? Oh, they had a guy who 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 you know. I can't remember his name now. I'm having a senior moment, but they had guys. But they really couldn't come out and say that, you know, talk about point spreads. They can give their predictions and picks and say, hey, I, I like Green Bay to, to, to win by a touchdown. But they couldn't say, I like Green Bay to cover the five and a half. And that was across the board. Baseball, football, basketball. Gambling was so frowned up. It was, it was viewed as such this seedy, terrible thing. If you wanted to place a bet, you knew a guy, right? <laughs> you knew a guy. You or you knew a guy who knew a guy. We had the uh the pick remember the uh, the pick sheets, the long, especially during football season, somebody somebody always had the pick sheets. Again, you knew a guy. And they were just long sheets with every single college football game and every single NFL game. And you just, you, you, you circled the, and then the bottom part was detachable and you just circled the numbers, ripped it off, you gave it to your guy who gave it to his guy who had given it to his guy, you know? You didn't talk about it. You didn't, you know, couldn't talk about it on TV or the radio, but you, it's, you always, somebody always had the sheets. Now, <laughs> now, we have shows on TV dedicated to sports gambling. You turn on any of the sports networks. I know Fox has one. I know ESPN has one. 
I think it's called the Daily Wager. Now we have entire shows dedicated to sports gambling. We got arenas and stadiums applying to have sports books put into those arenas and stadiums. We have casinos popping up all over the place. And where sports gambling is now legal, they have sports books in those casinos. For example, the Rivers in Pittsburgh has its own sports book. That was never the case. I mean, if you wanted to gamble legally, you went to Vegas. That was it. That was it. Now it's all over the place. Now, if you leave, uh, live in West Virginia or Pennsylvania or New Jersey, I think those are the only three so far, with many more to come, you can place a bet on your phone. You can download an app, put money into an account, and place a bet on pretty much anything from your living room on a phone. It has changed so much, so drastically, since when I was a kid. It's ama- it really is amazing. Now, there are some people who still view it as you know this, this evil, terrible, and it, and it can cause problems. Gambling, like anything else, can be, obviously, it's addictive. Obviously, it causes issues. Obviously, people have problems. But the way it is viewed and perceived now by the major sports, because they know there's so much money involved. There's so much money involved and changing hands. Like the sports, the, the major pro sports couldn't ignore it anymore. They could, they tried to in the past because they didn't want any kind of controversy. They didn't want any kind of uh, backlash. They didn't want gambling to seep into their sports. They didn't want the point shaving. They didn't want any kind of scandal. They didn't want players gambling on their own games. They didn't want manager Pete Rose gambling on. They didn't want that. They wanted to keep all that out. So they never brought it up and never talked about it. Now look at it. Why? Because they now understand the the tremendous <laughs> amount of money that changes hands. Gambling, fantasy football, or fantasy sports in general. It's all over the place now. That's one of the biggest changes. One of the biggest changes I've noticed, you know, again, going back to the premise from yesterday in the last 50 years. It's all about the money, man. It's all about the money. Which was a big reason, as we switch gears, a big reason for what happened yesterday. And we knew it was going to happen. It was only a matter of time. The NFL owners were at some point going to approve a 17-game regular season. More games to bet on, I suppose. And they did exactly that yesterday. Expanding the regular season by one game, which goes into effect this season. The reason for the expansion is it's exactly what you would expect it to be. Money. Here's Adam Schefter. There's huge money involved in expanding the schedule to 17 regular season games per team. And after a year in which there was lost revenue from the pandemic, 
we can look to the cap ballooning starting in 2023, thanks to the expanded schedule in part, thanks to more games, thanks to bigger media rights deals. But now you're going to see, L, the schedule be pushed back, the Super Bowl be played the Sunday night before President's Day. You're going to see these teams have extra games. Obviously, this is something everybody knew coming. It was baked into the last collective bargaining agreement done over a year ago. There's zero surprise. This was just a formality. And that formality was officially approved by owners today. It was always going to happen the 17-game season. Right. Again, it wasn't a matter of if, but when. And given what happened last year with all the money they lost, because you know there were no fans for most, you know, most of the season, even when there were fans, it weren't enough to make a dent. All the money that was lost yet, this is the perfect time to expand to 17 games. Is it not? If you're the NFL, the perfect, an extra game means an extra game's worth of, you know, tickets, ticket sales at the gate, concessions, parking, merch, you name it. You name it. And you heard Shefty say, you know, the players agreed to this. You have, when we talked about this on Monday, when the news came out that the owners were very likely to approve it either Tuesday or yesterday or, or today. And yeah, players complaining about it, you know, you know, no, it's about health and safety and this and that, whatever. And I can't believe we're going 17 games. The players agreed to it. They agreed to the additional game as part of the 2020 CBA collective bargaining agreement, which gave the league the option to expand as early as 2021, which is exactly what they did. And you have some people saying that the NFL is taking advantage of the players, that the NFL is getting one over on the players. But you heard Shefty say, man, we, you knew this is coming. It's, it's in the CBA. If you vote on something and you agree on something, you can't turn around and complain about it. No, I'm sure not everybody was on board with it. So you have those. I think Alvin Kamara went on online and he was complaining about it. You know, and there will be some changes involved. You know, we got scheduling changes. The preseason is going to get cut back. Health benefits are going to There's going to be a lot of moving and shaking to accommodate this extra game. But DeMora Smith, who is the head of the NFLPA, uh, balks at the notion that somehow, someway, the NFL kind of got one over uh, on the players. We didn't give them anything. The conversation about 17 games actually started in the 2006 CBA when the league had the right to go beyond 18 games for free. We changed that in the 2011 CBA. Moving forward in 2020, the players opened up the CBA negotiations with collective bargaining stances that called for massive increases in salaries for our players, increases in our share of revenue, better benefits for former players. The league tied that to a 17th game season, and they bought that right, bought that right to go to 17 games. So he's saying, you know, Nothing comes for free. They just didn't vote on us get an extra seven, you know, extra game in there that they had to give the players A, B, C, and D in order to get it done. That they were not getting one over on the players. For example, the preseason now is going to be three games instead of four. 
right? NFL had to concede that, which only makes sense. If you're tacking on an extra game at the end of the regular season, you got to take one off at the beginning of the season. So it goes from four to three. Regular season will start September 9th. It'll end January 9th. And the Super Bowl is now pushed back a week to February 13th, uh, 2022. Now, obviously, there are some issues with having an odd number of games, 17. The AFC, which, which, by the way, before I move on, you you know it's only a matter of time. (laughs) Because of that odd number, they're going to go to 18. You know it's going to happen. You know it's coming. That 18th game, sooner rather than later. The AFC and NFC, they will rotate annually between eight home games and nine home games. The AFC will go first and have nine home games this season. Then the NFC will have nine next season and on, on, and on. The extra game will be a cross-conference game based on the previous year's divisional standings. And the division schedule rotation from two seasons prior. Now, I know that sounds a little bit, you know, convoluted, a little bit confusing. But it actually, is, it's pretty simple. Now, I'll use the Steelers as an example. Their 17th game is going to be against Seattle. Okay? Steelers finished first last year in the North, AFC North. Seattle finished first last year in the NFC West. So it's a first-place team versus a first-place team. That's why they say it's based on the previous year's divisional standings. The Ravens, who finished second in the AFC North, they're playing the Rams, who finished second in the NFC West. That's their extra game. What division they play is based on the schedule rotation from two years ago. So So not last year's schedule. 2019 schedule. In 2019, the AFC North played the NFC West. So that's what it's based on. So it's where you finish in your division and what cross-conference division you played two years ago. That's why Washington, they finished first in the NFC East. Okay, Two years ago, the East played the AFC East. So Washington, their extra game this year will be against Buffalo who finished first in the East this year. I hope that simplifies things a little bit. But this is what you're going to happen. With, is it, you'll have that with this weird, again, funky uh, 17 games. Which actually makes for some pretty decent games now you think about it. That's going to be a good... And you hope the games will actually mean something. A full schedule will be released uh, later this spring. The NFL also said that uh, the enhanced, they're calling the enhanced season, will guarantee that starting in 2022, each team will play an international game at least once every eight seasons. Up to four neutral site games will be scheduled with the initial focus in Canada, if we could ever cross the border, Europe, Mexico, South America, and the U.K., The league said that interested teams can also volunteer to play home games internationally, which it seems like Jacksonville does every other week. And again, there's going to be changes to benefits. There's going to be changes 
to salaries, the salary cap's probably going to go up. There's going to be a lot of things moved around because of this extra game. The one thing not changing is the bye week, which I would have thought they would have added an extra one, but they're not, which could lead to something else, which we'll talk about next. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Talking NFL, the owners approving yesterday an extra game. So all you NFL fans out there, rejoice. You now have an extra game to watch this year. A 17-game regular season beginning this season. So the play 17 games, it'll be an 18-week season because they are not adding an extra bye week. I thought they might. But they are not. So now teams are playing 17 games. They still only have the one bye week, which could lead to something else. Here's ESPN's Shea Cornette. The wear and tear part on the players is the most important. I just wonder, as we see 17 games, maybe it moves to 18 games. I don't think in our lifetime it'll ever get to 20. But point being, as as more games regular season increases, I wonder if we're going to start to see load managing now on the NFL side, something that we haven't really ever seen. I mean, you see the Pittsburgh Steelers, rest Big Ben Roethlisberger, and some of their older veteran players when they haven't had a proper bye week and whatever at the end of the season when they've already clinched the playoffs. But now I wonder if we're going to see more of that because you don't have a double bye, even though you add an extra game, um, and how that impacts overall how you plan for the, for the upcoming season. As soon as I heard load management, I cringe because I don't like it. The NBA does it. Your players taking all kinds of different games off because of the oh the the grueling wear and tear of an 82 game NBA regular season or however long it is this season. I don't even know. And load management bothers me because you have paying customers buying tickets uh, to a game where they expect to see the best players playing. Now, in particular, the NBA. You might go to a game and the big guys aren't playing because of the load management. Got to get a day off. right? Got to keep them rested for the playoffs. This is something that just happened a couple, started a couple years ago, and I hate it. So I cringe to think that the NFL will go down the same route and start managing players' playing time because of the extra game. If you, I shouldn't say if, they are. You add an extra game to the NFL schedule, but half the team isn't playing, or some of the big stars aren't playing, then what's the point? <laughs> you know? we And she mentioned, you know, and we have, teams have done it in the past, if you have a playoff spot clinched, There's always that debate, do you rest players your final week to avoid injury, but then they come back. You know, we've had teams have two weeks off, right? They take the final game off, then they have a bye week in the playoffs, and they they come back and they're rusty, and sometimes they get upset. 
And then, you know, people, you have two sides to that argument. It's always, oh, yeah, you rest them. You don't want, get them rested up, get them healthy. You don't want them to get injured. And yeah, people say, no, keep them on the field, keep them playing. If an injury is going to happen, it's going to happen regardless. But now with the extra game, are we actually going to start seeing teams give, I guess, in effect, their players an extra bye week without there actually being an extra bye week? Are we going to see teams when we get down to the you know game 14, 15, 16, 17, just start giving guys a game off? Which is going to water down the product. It's going to water down the game. If you buy a ticket to a week 16 game between the Ravens and, uh, I don't know, pick one. Who, who has another good quarterback? The Packers. You buy a ticket to see Lamar Jackson and Aaron Rodgers. And instead, you get those backups, right? You're going to be pretty cheesed off, won't you? What's the point of having? And I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying teams are going to do it. But just the thought of it, of load management now becoming, getting into the NFL, it's to me, it's bothersome. It's bothersome. What's the point of eliminating? a preseason game when you may end up getting one anyway in the second half of the regular season. When you have, when you're starting, you know, can you see it? You can see it, can't you? You can see teams calling up players from the practice squad and giving guys rest. Now, I know that would be tricky. It would be difficult to navigate because you just don't want to throw away a regular season game. It might mean something. But if players and coaches, if they're truly concerned about the extra game and the wear and tear, we could start seeing it. And that would be bad for the product. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. 17-game regular season beginning this year. So there you go. Mark your calendar. Now, something else that is uh, going on today that you may not have heard about, you may not have realized, because we're all, you know, involved, entrenched in uh, March Madness. The Supreme Court today is going to hear arguments from the NCAA in a case over whether the NCAA can cap, can put a cap on educated-related benefits paid to college athletes. Now, we all know about the debate over whether student athletes should get paid or not paid, right? We all, we've talked about it just over and over and over again. And there are actually some players that are still playing in the in this year's tournaments, women's and men's tournaments, who are kind of putting a little pressure on the NCAA. They started this hashtag not NCAA property. If you go on Twitter, you, you know, just you can search it and you can see what players are saying what about, you know, this whole situation. And we all know where the NCAA stands. They've been trying to keep this, you know, amateur status for student athletes for for years. And they they've given a little bit over the past, you know, they they've allowed if you want to consider larger payments to the athletes, like full full cost of attendance, which began in, what, I think 2015, not too long ago. 
And now the NCAA is in this process of, you know, allowing players to profit from name, we call it the nil, name, image, and likeness. So now we have a case going to the Supreme Court today. And it's the first one related to the NCAA since 1984, which I think somehow involved the University of Oklahoma. And this new case, and some of you guys may actually recognize the name, it was brought by Sean Alston, a running back for West Virginia and other student athletes. They are arguing that the NCAA's restrictions on educated-related benefits, like computers, science equipment, musical instruments, that they violate federal antitrust laws. And now it's gone to the highest court. And I know it's confusing when you start getting into legal, you know, whatnot. Legal jargon, legal mumbo-jumbo, and antitrust lawsuits and all that other kind of stuff. At the heart of the case is the allegation that the NCAA is acting like hypocrites. Raking in a lot of money while underpaying athletes in the name of amateurism, Right? They're arguing that the NCAA's restrictions on educated-related payments are cost-cutting measures when they're making a ton of money. Yesterday, uh, Paul Feinbaum on his show had Michael McCann on from Sportico to try to break it all down. Very basically, it's whether or not colleges through the NCAA can agree to limit compensation to student-athletes. That's the core question. And the the reason why it's a legal issue is because under antitrust law, businesses can't conspire in ways that hurt the market. So two gas stations coordinating prices would be a problem. If two big retail stores decided to break up the country in terms of markets, that would be a problem. Here, the question is, is it a problem if schools in the SEC and other big conferences and across the country can agree to a set of rules that don't let them pay market or other value for college athletes. So when Zion Williamson was a recruit or when Trevor Lawrence was a recruit, they would have had major schools really bidding for them like free agents. Why can't, why can't that be the system? And that, that's going to come up. You, you asked a question in your piece, if Austin wins, would this be the end of amateurism? And I, and I, I try to, I try to, I try to read that from your piece and ask you with, with a straight face, because we all know there's no such thing. However, what happens if he does win? If he does win, then the most likely outcome is not going to be the sweeping change that I just referenced. It would be more narrow. It would be that schools can't join hands to limit what college athletes can get from their schools in terms of academics. So things like computer lab fees and money for internships and study abroad, things like that. Now, that's not the Trevor Lawrence free agent scenario I just played out. But it's still several thousand dollars a year, maybe more, potentially. And the NCAA has said, if we go down that path, where once we start chipping away at restrictions on what college athletes can get, it's going to lead to a slippery slope where that scenario of Trevor Lawrence and Zion Williamson as de facto free agents could happen. Michael, every day we hear leaders, they, they, they seem so genuinely concerned about the student-athlete. 
for those of us sitting in the peanut gallery, uh, it doesn't seem like they're overly concerned in this case, are they? Well, I guess they would say that the examples of Trevor Lawrence and Zion Williamson are misleading, that the vast majority of college athletes wouldn't be free agents coveted by schools along those lines, that schools are providing major value to student-athletes through full rides, tuition, room, board, all of that, that nowadays at a private school, I mean, what is the value of that at Duke or, or Georgetown? It's probably seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 a year. Obviously, for parents, that's, that's a lot of money. So the NCAA could say, we are doing a lot for student-athletes. And if we have a system where it's de facto free agency, then some schools are just not going to have teams. And the marketability of college sports will diminish. Maybe they would view college sports more like the minor leagues, like the G League or the XFL, and that would hurt the game, and, and schools would lose money, and it, it would hurt everyone. That might be their response. So this is something to keep an eye on. And I understand. It's still, I'm a little bit confused myself. And the Supreme Court is hearing the argument from the NCAA today. And really, the NCAA argues that removing the cap on those educated-related benefits would open the door for any compensation that schools could spin as related to education. So that's kind of what they're talking about, like this this free agent market, this bidding war. If you have like a high-profile athlete, then a school could pretty much take anything. Any benefit they wanted to pay an athlete and say, oh, this is, this is education-related. Uh, this is built into the scholarship. This is, you know. And then, then it's, it's like wild, wild west. Then, then it's, just, it's, 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 a, uh, it's a free-for-all. And the NCAA doesn't want that. They want that cap on the educated-related benefits. They don't want it to go off the rails. Because then, as you heard McCann just say, then it becomes like, College becomes like a G League or an XFL or just a developmental league. So we'll we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep, we'll try to keep track of it. We'll try to make sense of it to see what the Supreme Court decides, either with Sean Alston and and the players or the NCAA, and where it goes from there. All right, one final break, and then we will be back to wrap up today's show. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Wrapping things up. On the morning rush on this Wednesday morning, and not a moment too soon because my voice is really about to go. Before I go, let's check on the player who delivered last night, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. How about this guy right here? Campbell pounds it down, shot clock at 10, get it to Juzang right side, just inside the arc against Brooks. Juzang rips it through, drives down to the right side, flips it up, and in on the baseline. Johnny Juzang with 27. 50 to 47 UCLA. UCLA's Johnny Juzang, the sophomore guard, went for 28 points, more than half of his team's total, to lead the Bruins to a 51 49 upset over Michigan and lock down a trip, although it's not really a trip, they're already there, to the Final Four as an 11 seed. So UCLA's Johnny Juzang, the player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping 
and Supply Yard. We're talking about the NFL earlier, approving an extra game. They're moving to a 17-game season beginning this season. Also yesterday, NFL Commish Roger Goodell says that the league is making plans to open stadiums to full capacity for the 2021 season, which immediately makes people go, what? Full capacity? What? Now, look, it won't be easy because if they want to open up the full capacity, they still have to get, you know, local state governments on board. NFL just can't kick down a door and go, all right, let everybody into the NFL stadiums. It doesn't work that way. If that was the case, they would have done it last year. <laughs> they would have done it last season. But attendance was down more than 90%, as you could imagine, last season uh, from you know 2019. That accounted for about 1.2 million fans. Can you imagine that? How much money was lost? 1.2 million. Now, it says here in some cases, NFL will need local municipalities to sign off on attendance plans in order to fully open up their stadiums. Vaccine rates may also factor into it. I guess a certain percentage of people vaccinated within a certain city might play into it. Right now, a total of 18 NFL stadiums are in use as mass vaccination sites. One and a half million shots have been administered at those sites, according to the NFL. So, usually, what the NFL wants, the NFL gets, right? Usually, if Roger Goodell says, we're going to have full capacity of stadiums in 2021, I think you'd be foolish to bet against it. Whether you agree with it or not, NFL don't care. <laughs> All right. The NFL is going to do what the NFL is going to do. And they proved that last year when people were wondering, oh, are they still going to have the NFL draft when the pandemic was really just getting kickstarted? And they did. Is the NFL going to have free agency? Uh, they did. <clears throat> Is the NFL going to have a full season? Uh, they did. The NFL is just going to do what it wants to do. And again, doesn't really care what you think about it. I'm sure there will be people who are appalled, who are beside themselves, who will commence in the clutching of the pearls when they find out that the NFL wants full capacity in their stadiums, what, five months from now, six months from now? If they want it to happen, they're going to make it happen. I even if even if there's pushback, you know, from states and 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 local governments, I think it's going to happen. I hope it happens. I hope that we are to a point come early. What did I say? The season starts September 9th. I hope that we get to a point when the regular season starts September 9th that it won't even be an issue. I mean, I know it will be. Don't get me wrong. I know there will still be, you know guidelines, protocols, and such and such. And we've been talking about this for the past year and a half, whatever it's been. But I wouldn't doubt the NFL one bit in this situation because they don't want to lose that money again. They don't want to lose everything they lost last year. They can't go through, professional sports can't go through what they did last year. 
There's just no way. They will push. They will fight. They will claw to get fans, not only for the experience, because the experience is better with fans in the stands, but for the money. So we'll see. All right. Uh, We're done. We're out of here. I'm finished. So go do whatever. Enjoy your day. Have fun. Stick around for KJZ. I'll be back tomorrow here on the Morning Rush. See ya.